0: Now we turn in our study to God's Word to Romans chapter 10, and uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 4, and what we get to see in this passage is the heart of the, the religious unbeliever. The best an unbeliever can be in the pursuit of righteousness and still fall short of the glory of God clearly in these qualities brought out, and as I will show you there are five different qualities of the unbeliever's heart, that all, whether you're on the pagan unbelieving side or the religious unbelieving side, all will have some part of these qualities brought out. Paul draws our attention to the Jew, particularly the Jewish audience and their rebellion against God and He brings up this particular group because there would be the obvious question, if God has sent forth his gospel and he's saving some, what about the Jews who were his people? Now, we shouldn't miss that what Paul is saying here in Romans 10, particularly verses 2 through 4, isn't anything new. God has been making this message known for generations. He's been warning Israel of their rebellion, warning Israel that they had turned away from God, though they were the ones who were recipients of the blessings, the ones who were the recipients of the promises, the ones who were the recipients of the fathers, of God's good pleasure and grace. They were stubbornly hardening their hearts, and they had turned away from God. So and so that God sent prophets to them to minister to them. Isaiah says this, Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 says this, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words, and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote." I like the way the ESV translates it. Listen to the ESV. It translated, translates it this way. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Now notice. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This was God's assessment of the condition of the Jews at that time. And again, this are hundreds of years before Paul is writing here and giving a full assessment. It says of them, they honor God with their lips. They speak boldly about God. They regularly talk about God. They speak highly about Him. They speak of His greatness. They are quick to tell people of the greatness of God. They're quick to speak up. The words are filled with flattery. Their words are great boasts about God. Great boasts of maybe even their own love and devotion to God. What other God is out there like the God of Israel? They love to boast about the greatness of their God. No other nation had a God like the nation of Israel did. No other nation had a great and powerful God. They were speaking boldly of their great love for God. They honored him with their lips. Yes, they could talk about peace, they could talk about mercy, they can talk about grace, they can talk about the covenant promises, they could talk about the fathers, they could talk about the traditions, they could talk about the oracles of God, they could talk about everything that they were given that separated them and set them apart, and they loved to boast of these things. Their words regularly committed, uh, demonstrated an affirmation of the greatness of God and God's ways. So much so, that they believed it themselves. They believed that those words adequately reflected their heart. And yet, as Isaiah says, and as the Lord reveals, their hearts were far away from me. They were there with their words, but not with their heart What they believed, what they were inward, did not reflect what they were saying outward. And what they failed to recognize is that God was the one who sees the heart. God has said this many times in the Old and in the New Testament. That God looks at the heart. You remember when David was being selected as king, Samuel was sent out by the Lord to find a replacement for Saul. And when Samuel was sent out in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God has given Samuel some instruction. And God said to Samuel this, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at outward appearance, but, notice, the Lord looks at the heart. God's assessment is a heart assessment. God's assessment is to see in the inner man. That's First Chron- First Samuel sixteen verse seven. In First Chronicles chapter twenty eight and verse nine, David is passing away. It's on his deathbed. He is going to hand the kingdom off to Solomon. And he gives these final words to Solomon to remind Solomon of his, his duty and to, to uh, remind Solomon of the God of Israel. He says this, David speaking, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Solomon, pay attention here. Know the God, the God I worship, and you give your whole heart and your whole mind to him. Why? For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Remember, he... I mean, can you imagine hearing those words from your father, the king, who is passing away, who says to you, son, pay attention to the living God? Scriptures are filled with these kinds of examples that God is not like man. God does not see what man sees. He sees more. He sees the heart. In fact, he sees every thought and intention of the heart. That is God's assessment. Sees the heart condition. Scriptures are clear of this, that God is the first and the greatest heart surgeon. He is the one who sees what is taking place within, and he is the one who is assessing it. So that Israel, as they have speaking of great things about God, boasting in God, trusting even in their own words, they probably even believe that message about themselves. Their heart was in a different place. We cannot trust our own assessment of ourselves. We cannot trust our own words at times. It's happened so easily. I've seen this so many times. Of a bitter wife or a bitter husband at their spouse, consumed with that bitterness, tearing their spouse down, failing in the midst of this, thinking they have this great spiritual life while they are destroying their spouse and they don't recognize you are violating the very command that says love your enemies. Even if that spouse whom you've committed to is your covenant spouse, even if they were your enemy, you were still called to love them. It's easy. We speak highly of our spirituality, but fall short. The heart is, again, drifts away from the things of God. So the Israel had known truth and spoke highly of God, but their heart was in a different place. And then Isaiah adds the second element, this. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They don't have a genuine fear for me. They have fear that they learn by man's teaching. They fear what men teach about God. They don't fear God. They fear the doctrines of men. They don't fear God. They are trained to fear the things of God as they listen to it, but they don't have a fear for the living God. For a fear of the living God would lead them to holiness and lead them to righteousness. They were actually led away from righteousness. Jesus would say, if you love me, you keep my commandments. A genuine fear of God would lead to a genuine love for him, genuine love that sought to keep his commandments and follow after him. They were led astray. So we said it again. They didn't understand God's righteousness. They didn't understand His holiness. They didn't understand His perfections. They didn't understand His ways. They thought it was was attainable in their own effort. The righteousness of God was attainable by what they did, what they pursued. They didn't recognize that God was without spot. They didn't recognize that God was eternally holy and righteous. They didn't recognize that God couldn't tolerate a single defect. They couldn't... Understand and didn't understand that one sin deserved death, Romans 6.23. They didn't understand that, again, that God was so holy and so righteous, he couldn't look upon evil and tolerate it. They did not understand these things. So they were in a place where he figured they were just so close, so close to God's righteousness, they could just make a sacrifice and, and get restored, and then they can keep the law. Uh, yes, we sin, I will offer up my sacrifices, and we will be restored. So that by the practice of sacrifices and their keeping of the law, that they would be righteous enough that God would accept them and they would enter into eternal life. And yet, God kept saying over and over again, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, Hosea 6.6. 6. Or, for thou does not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God was regularly saying throughout that he is looking for the one, again, who is not earning righteousness, but the one who is laying himself bare before God, believing upon God to be restored. So this is the assessment from the Old Testament that has been made known to the Jew, and yet they still stubbornly resisted. Now we come to Paul's word here in Romans chapter 10. And Paul just exposes the condition of this religious unbeliever, the one who is in hostility. And as we saw last week, the first element is that they did not know God. Verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. They had a lot of passion. They had a lot of energy. They had a lot of effort. A lot of personal sacrifices. You might be able to look at their life externally and say that person gives a whole lot of themselves. They give a lot of their time. They give a lot of their energies. They're always engaged. They have a lot of zeal. But here is the the exposing of it. But not in accordance with knowledge now what is stunning about this is that it's not in accordance with knowledge doesn't mean that they weren't given that knowledge actually Romans 3 tells us they were given the very oracles of God they were given the word of God they had the word of God they had the prophets they had the truth right before them here's the difference they didn't believe it They didn't rightly handle the Scriptures. They didn't come under God's message. They did not minister according to God's revealed message. Therefore, they did not minister according to the knowledge of God. That's why Bible interpreters for generations have been saying this. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. You don't have the Scripture simply because you used religious words. You have the Scripture when you give God's intended meaning, God's message. You found authorial intent. You've communicated what the original audience would have understood. you communicated what the original author had intended to communicate. When you communicate God's very message, you have the Scriptures. They did not have a zeal according to knowledge. They did not rightly handle God's word and not, and not rightly handling God's word, they went astray. They changed the message of God. Again, what was stunning about all this, even having the traditions and having all the customs, they had this zeal and this passion and this commitment and dedication and devotion. They had... Again, we can take from Isaiah's account, they even had a fear for God. They had the right language. We can even add they had community. They had religious services. They had traditions. They had teachers. They had knowledge, but was not according to the knowledge of God. Thus, it was empty. Thus, it fell short. And Paul Expands on that here because that would be kind of terrifying for us if we just said, well, you know, I have passion for God. I, I, I love the Lord. I, I think a genuine love for Christ produces a genuine excitement for His things. And I love being with God's people and I love worshiping. I love singing. I love seeing the fruit of the gospel on display in people's lives. So is that a problem that I have zeal? No, it continues. Paul continues on here and exposes other qualities in the heart of these uh, religious unbelievers, the ones who had knowledge of religious things but not faith. There's some other qualities about it. I'm going to look for the final four this morning. The next one is this they do not know God's righteousness. Verse 3. And again, it's exactly what it says for not knowing about God's righteousness. Why did they fall short? Is this very next phrase? They did not know about God's righteousness. They didn't understand what God's righteousness entailed. They had simply thought the righteousness was keeping God's commands. But they missed it. They missed many aspects of God's righteousness. They miss the expressions of it, the source of it. They miss the the fact that the law, the righteousness of God is a reflection of the very character of God. They miss the eternality of God's righteousness. That God is, again, will not change His righteousness. That's what He says in Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Listen to this. It says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not wane." Like uh, all that you see around you, this world, the earth and the sky, everything you see, this is all going to change. It's all going to diminish and come to an end. But what won't come to an end is righteousness. My righteousness shall not wane. Isaiah 51 verse 8. For the moth will eat them like a garment and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation to all generations. Isaiah 51.8 What they fail to recognize is the eternalness of God's righteousness that will be established forever. What they fail to recognize is that righteousness is an eternal standard. It will never change. God isn't going to get to the end of eternity and say, okay, Great, we get to start over. All the rules of the past, we get to abolish. We get to come up with a new set of rules. In the past, you couldn't worship any other god, but now you can worship any god you want because the rules are just simply arbitrary. No, these are eternal laws, eternal righteousness, because it's a reflection of the character of God. They did not know the righteousness of God. They figured the righteousness of God was something that was malleable moldable, able able to be changed accordingly. Not knowing the righteousness of God, then, they missed some things. They missed its eternality. They missed its source, that it comes from God. God's the one who defines the standard. But they also missed what the word of God, or where the righteousness of God manages or or controls it controls the inner man and the outer man If i had to make some observations about righteousness there before i'd make for you real quick what is god's righteousness some observations we can make is this first of all righteousness is revealed in the law where is it revealed it's revealed in god's law exodus chapter 20 tells us that it shows us the path of righteousness what what it means to love god and to love others so all of God's commands to love God and love others is revealed there in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And righteousness is the standard by which we are measured. Proverbs 11 verse 19 says, those who practice righteousness will live. It's The practice, the standard of righteousness is what we're measured by. So righteousness is revealed in the law. We are measured by righteousness and thirdly, the loss of righteousness cannot be con- uh, regained by one's personal effort. Once you and I have sinned in one way, we cannot restore ourselves. We can't atone for one transgression, let alone a lifetime of transgressions. One sin, one lie, one failure, one transgression, one obstinate thought or obstinate action. One area in which we miss the mark, we are eternally separated from God. That's why, again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And then, fourth characteristic of righteousness is that righteousness governs the inner and outer man. That's what Jesus made clear. Look over at Matthew chapter 5, we see this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes clear this very principle that righteousness governs the inner and the outer man. When Christ came along, he started to teach. He said in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 18 it describes, the Heaven and earth will not pass away until all is fulfilled. then in verse 21 and following, he takes the traditions of the day and, and says, this is what you are taught, but I say unto you. And notice what he says, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now verse 22. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You've just heard say, don't commit murder. I'm telling you, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder. Righteousness governs even the inner man. Not just your external practices, but your internal practices. Say to somebody, well, I haven't murdered anyone yeah, but when they cut you off on the street, were you angry? And you murdered in your heart. It goes on into verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, I haven't committed adultery, but I certainly loved enjoying seeing enjoying god's creation righteousness governs the heart the, the inner man just as the also the outer man and jesus demonstrates that it's back to romans 10 here in verse 3 for not knowing about god's righteousness and seek, not knowing about god's righteousness they had replaced the standard of god They replaced what God had said with their own particular standard. They didn't understand the depths of God's righteousness. They didn't understand that God's righteousness was immovable. They didn't understand that it was eternal. They didn't understand that once it is lost, it could not be regained by human effort. They figured they were just, just a little bit short, and they needed something to push them over the top. A little more effort, another sacrifice, another little duty, and they could get to where they needed to be. And they missed it. Third quality, notice, in the text says, not knowing about God's righteousness, it also says, and seeking to establish their own. Here's really the heart of where they fell short they took God's standard and replaced it with their own standard. Yeah, if I don't measure up, I'll just change the rules to the rules into which I can keep. And in the midst of that, then that's what I'll make God happy with, seeking to establish their own. They should have come to the law and see the demanding perfections of the law. They should have come to that and recognized, I can't keep that. I keep falling short. They should have been broken by the law, humbled at its demands, humbled by the fact that when the law came, it only stirred up more within them. As we saw back in Romans chapter 7. The law came in its perfecting standards and told us not to covet. Then all of a sudden, coveting increased within. It wasn't a problem with the law. It was a problem with sin. A problem with the human heart. And instead of being broken by that righteous standard of God, they changed it. as Paul says here, seeking to... Establish their own their own standard their own traditions this is clear and certainly was clear in our Lord's life what this looked like turn over to Matthew chapter 12 where we see exactly what this looked like in our Lord's ministry Matthew chapter 12 is the turning point in Matthew's gospel up to that point Christ's ministry is public Christ's ministry is is, uh, before all religious leaders as well as the people. He is ministering publicly, but by chapter 10, there starts to be an increasing hostility. Chapter 12 is the peak of that. From chapter 13 and following, Jesus leaves ministering to the religious leaders, no longer speaking plainly to them. He speaks to them in parables, and he pulls away from them and just ministers to his disciples until the end. Here in chapter 12, we see the stumbling block. Verse 1 of chapter 12, on one particular morning, a Sabbath morning, Jesus and his disciples are walking through grain fields on the Sabbath, it says, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat it. Now, for the Jew, this is a serious problem. That is labor on the Sabbath. You're working, you're violating the Sabbath rules. You are now in violation of God's commands. Ah, this proves it. Jesus is hostile to the law of Moses. Jesus is hostile to God. He leads a, a group of rebellious people. Even if he himself didn't do it, all the people under him are lawless, and so he is discredited. Verse 2, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, Your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. They violated the law. They are in rebellion, by implication, in rebellion to God. They are unrighteous in their practices. Again, notice what Jesus says to them. But he said to them. (laughs) Here's a phrase. Have you not... Bread? what David did when he became hungry and he and his companions and how he entered into the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him but the priests alone don't you recognize the compassion of God to David and his men that how God showed compassion to him and he went in and that's recorded in the scriptures in the word of God Or verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Look, every single Sabbath, the priests go to work. They're not guilty. They're innocent. Verse 7, but if you had known... What this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, they had overestimated their abilities. They had created their own laws. They had sought to establish their own righteousness. They had set their own customs, and their own customs were set up over the scriptures. How do you know they were over the Scriptures? Because, as Jesus pointed out here, if you had gone back and read the Word of God, you would recognize the inconsistency. David was not found guilty. The priest who is sacrificing week in and week out, who is laboring, who is ministering, is working, and you don't condemn him. And, if you've gone back and read the Scriptures you'd recognize that God has said, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. They created their own standard of righteousness. And this is what Jesus was confronting as he comes along. Continue on in, in there, in verse 8. It says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went on to their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I mean, just an absolutely stunning question. Can you do good to a man who is crippled on the Sabbath? The obvious answer should be yes. And yet he went to them and said, verse 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Won't he work? Won't he labor? Won't he go in and rescue the hurt, the the lamb who's in the pit? Of course he would. How much more valuable, verse 12, then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Every one of you, if you had one little animal that had gone astray and was in harm's way, you would rescue it, even on the Sabbath. Why would you not rescue a man who's far greater? You see, they had created their own traditions, created their own rules, created their own standard of righteousness. And in creating their own standard of righteousness, they had concluded, we are able to keep this standard. They would tell people how to dress, tell people how to operate, they'd tell people how to act, how to eat, what to do on the Sabbath, and they loved setting up the rules. They loved defining every little nuance. You can't work on the Sabbath, you can't carry a burden. Well, what's a burden? Well, anything heavier than a date if you had to carry something heavier than a date, then you were carrying a burden. But if you cut it in half, then you can just take the halves and you can carry that around. And what is the burden? It's writing too much. But if you only wrote half of a Hebrew letter, it's not labor. But if you write the whole letter, that's labor. Oh, they were exacting and precise and keeping of all the commands. They had exact rules and principles of what to do on the Sabbath day to keep everyone burdened down by their commands, their rules, their traditions. And in this, again, Jesus kept exposing to them the inconsistencies of their traditions with the scriptures. Your tradition violates the scriptures for David operated against that very tradition. And the priests every week operate against that tradition. You keep setting up this tradition and the word of God has gone against it. To say in Paul's words in Colossians 2 and verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It cannot be delivered by man's own wisdom and understanding. That is the problem. We turning back to Romans chapter ten here in verse three. They are seeking to establish their own righteousness, seeking to establish their own practices. See, they, they failed to recognize their own inabilities. They failed to recognize their, that they were not able to attain to the righteousness of God. They overestimated themselves. I love this uh, idea. I, I was struck by this once when I was invited to a Jewish family's uh, Seder, you know, Passover Seder. I had worked with a secular Jew and he invited me to his home, my family and his family to have a, a seder together. He knew I was a pastor and uh, wanted to share this time together. So it was a great time. Brought my kids over and dad did the full, you know, Passover seder. He had the Passover script set where he would tell the story and in the process, along the way, you know, we had the singing, we had uh, the testimony about each of the elements and the symbolic meaning of all the elements. He would even quiz the children to see the children's responses to the meaning of the Passover. Quiz my kids, I can proudly say they passed, which was good. They learned everything they needed to learn in Sunday school. It was a sweet time, but I remember one particular element when he was explaining the bread. And he said, kind of a little gleam in his eye. Do you know what would happen for the Jew when it came to the Sabbath? So they had to the get rid of all leavened bread. Everything had to be removed from the house. They had no leavened bread in the house. So absolutely. So you know what would happen if they had too much bread? What they would do? So no, what would they do? They would sell it to a Gentile <laughs> and then buy it back after the Sabbath. And then there's a gleam in his eye. He says, that's how we got around the law. And I thought to myself as I was chuckling, you think you find a loophole in God's law. You think you can find a little way to move around. And again, this is the overestimating of man's ability. We can find a way, a loophole, to get around the law of God, to do exactly what we want to do and still be right before the law. Listen, man has no problem creating laws. I mean, look at our country. Something's broke. We'll just create another law. Another law is going to fix it. Another law will fix a problem. We will create laws, and our laws become more and more. Man has no problems creating laws because laws create loopholes. That's your law, but I can find this law. Look at our tax code. Look at anything. There is The creating of laws is no problem for man. Except for God's laws. That's where man struggles. God's laws. God's commands. Man is always looking for the legal loopholes to justify how he still has integrity, even by going around the law. They overestimate their ability. They overestimate what they can do. They overestimate themselves and how they've fallen short, changing God's standards to a different standard, and then they create enough rules that vindicate themselves. Leads to the fourth quality, Romans 10, verse 3 here. And they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They don't submit. They're obstinate. They will not come under God's righteousness. They replace God's righteousness with their own. They won't come under it. They nullify God, and they nullify His commands with their own. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. I can show you this from Jesus' account. Mark chapter 7 makes this very clear to us. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, and He exposes them here. All of chapter 7 just exposes the traditions of men that are elevated over the Word of God. Pharisees had created their traditions and elders. The elders had created their hand-washing traditions. And with those traditions, they they thought, yes, we are more holy because we wash our hands symbolically before taking of any bread, and we wash all the cups, and we wash everything, and we are more holy and kept unstained from the world. And again, this is where... Uh, the Isaiah 29 verse 13 passage is quoted in verse 6 and 7 showing the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. But notice verse 9. It says he was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And that is a piercing arrow to the heart Your own practices are to nullify God's commandments and God's ways for the elevating of yourself, the elevating of your own ways, your own practices. You are experts in this. How is that? Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. The law of God, the commands of God, are to honor your father and your mother. This is what God has said. This is his divine standard. This is his commandments, what we should practice. Verse 11, But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would be helped to you is Corbin, That is to say, given to God. You are, verse 12, no longer permit, no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. If you've said that your resources are dedicated to God, they now belong to God, it's God's money, God's resources, you now no longer, that man is no longer able to care for his mother and father, and you justify it. Because it's God's money now. It's not the man's money any longer. The man himself no longer has any resources because it's Corbin. He's given it to God, and therefore he can't care for his mother and father. He says, you permit this. Notice verse 13. It's the full indictment. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and do many things such as this. Here's the condition, you do not submit to God. When God said, here's my standard, here's what you are to do, you invalidate the very commands of God for your traditions. Oh, the religious hypocrite loves this. I have great commands, great laws, great things I'll practice for God. I mean, what's more spiritual? Yeah, I can help my mother and father, or I can give all that I have to God. So much more spiritual that I give all that I have to God. Funny, you still live off of that. You still eat from that same money that you've given to God. You still use all of those resources for yourself, though you've given it to God, and you invalidate the very commands of God. They didn't submit, they didn't come under God's word, they wouldn't follow His commandments. It's happened so much today, it is almost laughable. Or you think, you know, how do I phrase this? I'm going to get in trouble. No matter how I say this, I'm going to get in trouble, so we'll just say it. I was just thinking through today, uh, when ministry is set up like maybe a, a gay clergy, something like that. And you think, here's a gay clergy member who's now promoting their promiscuity, demonstrating this is genuine love, this is the love of God. And I think you are going against the revealed commands of God. Clearly, you are not reading the scripture. Clearly, you do not know God. Because if you knew God, you would tremble before him that you are violating his revealed will. They do not submit to God. They will not submit to God because they are confident of themselves, confident of their own abilities, confident of their own knowledge, their own understanding, their own righteousness, and they will not come under God. God is under their rule, not the other way around. That is man in his heart. And he's, that's an unbeliever. That is an unrighteous one. That is one who is heading to destruction Because he does not know God. Evident by the fact he would not submit to God. Turn back to Romans 10. Leads us to this last condition. Man, the unbeliever doesn't know their true need. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All this energy, all this effort striving for righteousness, all this redefining of the law, all of these traditions and customs, all of this effort leading to no ability to attain the righteousness of God, a righteousness that comes by faith, a righteousness that comes through Christ. They didn't know their need. They didn't know that they couldn't fix their problem. They couldn't make themselves right. I think the idea there, Christ is the end of the law. I don't think that's, that end means I'm um, uh, abolishing. It means completion, fulfilling. He is the perfect fulfillment of the law. All the laws, righteous demands are, are identified and satisfied in Christ. And it is that perfect life credited to us that gives us the ability to stand before God and to be righteous. Look, we keep the law now, not because we're earning a righteousness that God would be pleased. We keep the law now because we're set free to love God. We're set free to love him and his ways. We're set free by the power of his spirit to live in newness of life. We are set free as slaves of righteousness, Romans 6 says. We're set free to be led by His Spirit. If by the Spirit we keep His commandments and we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we shall live, Romans chapter 8 tells us. Here, the, again, they didn't recognize their need, their need for righteousness, a need that only was satisfied By believing upon Christ. This is the condition. And I love there that you have side by side the gospel minister and then the unbeliever. And the unbeliever in his best possible form. Informed by truth yet not believing. There's contrasted. What did the gospel minister demonstrate? Well, we saw this. It's in his attitude, in his action, and his awareness. His attitude is he had compassion for the lost. That's what we saw in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire for them, meaning my good pleasure is for their best. There is a genuine compassion that drives in our hearts for those who are lost. Yes, one part of me wants to have a righteous indignation of somebody who replaces god's word with their own traditions but the other side is their awareness that is spiritual blindness that led the person there and i am grieved by that blindness desire your best which leads to an action. Verse 1, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I am actively praying that they would be restored. The gospel minister prays diligently for the lost, seeking their restoration. And then the gospel minister is aware of the condition of the fallen man. A condition which we've been unpacking yes, last week and this week. A condition where man believes himself to be loving God because he's zealous, but he doesn't know God. A man who thinks he has righteousness, but he doesn't understand what righteousness is. And a man who has an overestimation of their own abilities that keep falling short. And a guy who will not subject himself to the truth, but stands over the truth as God's judge. And then a person who doesn't know their true need, which is found in Christ. See, this is all we minister to everyone again even the pagan unbeliever has these same qualities how many times have you sat down and talked to somebody and you asked them just the person who doesn't go to church atheistic in their life you say if god was true and you were to enter into eternal life how would you get there and their answer is well i'm a pretty good person i didn't murder anyone i, I didn't uh, steal anything I mean, I I give to others and help people out, so uh, I'll get there because I'm not that bad of a person. Again, that is a person who does not understand the righteousness of God and seeks to establish their own righteousness. And the unbeliever lives in this state of overestimating himself, lowering the standard of God, placing God under his thumb, and not knowing his abilities and his needs but not the child of God. The child of God, on the other hand, has a deep awareness of his own sinfulness, a deep understanding of how he's fallen short, and this increasing and robust faith that believes upon Christ, knowing that Christ supplies exactly what he needs. So when we minister, I pray, we minister with this awareness and attitude in mind so we can care for others. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, just what rich insights your scripture gives us into the condition of man. Indeed, we can see the tendencies in our own heart to drift. The tendencies to be self-reliant and change your standard and and, uh, overrule your word with our wisdom and understanding. We're thankful that you are so clear in your scriptures and so plain, the truth is right there for anyone who would seek and anyone who would desire to know. Your word is so plain and the heart of faith, in the heart of a child who yields in faith, believes upon you, is rescued. So we pray, Father, may we turn away from self-reliance, depend upon your spirit, May we turn away from our own self-trust and trust upon you. And may we have a genuine love and compassion for those who are lost and in spiritual blindness who are consumed by the stubbornness of their own rebellion. May it cause us to be more patient that our own heart would respond just like Paul's heart is, a heart of brokenness. Not viewing their transgression as a hostility towards us, but viewing their hostility their transgression for what it is, a hostility towards you. May our genuine love be manifest in our prayer and in our pursuit and in the ministry of your truth. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.